Welcome to the DLA Piper Technology Disputes Podcast, Get IT Right. In this new series from DLA Piper, we will be providing practical advice for both technology companies and companies who do business with technology companies. We will focus on ways to safeguard projects from potential disputes, as well as later in the series offering some thoughts on how to deal with the dispute if one should arise. As this is a broad topic, we will be providing the content over six podcasts, each of which will stream bi-monthly from today. The series is also accompanied by a number of related articles, which will be published on the dlapiper.com website. Hello, I'm Simon Kenyon, a litigation and regulatory partner at DLA Piper, and I also co-head DLA Piper's UK and international technology disputes practices. I'm today joined by my colleague, Dan Jones, a senior associate in our technology disputes team. Both Dan and I specialise in providing legal advice regarding disputes relating to technology contracts, and we welcome you to this, the first episode in this podcast series. We are delighted to be presenting this podcast series, and you will hear from us and others in DLA Piper's technology disputes team over the coming weeks. In today's episode, we will look at some useful tips to help you dispute-proof your technology contract. So Dan, dispute-proofing your technology contract, it sounds ambitious, so where do we start? Yeah, and that's certainly right. And at the outset of an ambitious tech project, it's, it's very easy to lose sight of the small details, which can ultimately make a big difference if things go wrong later down the line. Um, I mean, th- th- this is only natural and, and certainly no one goes into a project expecting it to fail. But hopefully by taking some of the steps that we're going to discuss today, it may help manage unexpected difficulties in a way which doesn't destroy the relationship between the parties. Yeah, I agree. And I, I guess between us, we could write a book on the things that may go wrong on these projects. But in your view, and from a disputes perspective, if you were to give just, say, three tips on making your technology project as robust as possible to avoid disputes, what would they be? Yeah, um, it's hard to kind of narrow them down to three, but I think at a high level, um, number one, budgeting, very important. Um, having effective agreements also. And teamwork is also key. Okay, so let's deal with those individually and unpack that a little bit. You mentioned budgeting there, so what are you thinking about specifically? Yeah, well, cost is a key factor in any decision, frankly, made by a business, and it'll be ultimately the key driver as to whether the project goes ahead or not. But despite this, I've I've certainly seen, I'm sure you have as well, Simon, insufficient thought being given to the cost of the project and how it might evolve at the outset. And perhaps sometimes there's a lack of understanding regarding the need for some contingency perhaps in the budget. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously also contingencies in terms of time as well, but why are contingencies as regards budgets so important for these projects? Perhaps why we're doing this whole podcast series is that large IT projects rarely proceed exactly according to plan. And if you've not built contingencies into your budget, there might not be any money left to affect the changes you need to ensure the project ultimately goes live in the form originally planned. We've discussed this before, Simon, but I think we often say there's three key levers to saving a project in distress. One of them is spending money on additional resources. Two is spending more time on resolving issues and and pushing out deadlines. Or finally, you can reduce the scope. And clearly, if you take one of these three levers away, there's a significantly greater chance of the project failing. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Most disputes which emerge do one way or another relate to money, be that perceived value perhaps from a customer perspective or from a supplier perspective, where there is potentially a fixed price and the customer appears to want more than has been contracted for. Yeah, and 
I think another particularly difficult dichotomy to manage is that big transformation projects are often implemented with a desire to cut costs, but there can ironically be a reluctance to spend money up front to realise the desired savings. So it's important to probably have a degree of realism about the amount of money that needs to be put in up front in order to achieve the cost savings. And sometimes it is necessary to spend the penny to save the pound in the long run. And being overly restrictive or rigid in, in the initial budget may um, limit the amount of savings you ultimately achieve through the project. Yeah, and I guess a related topic is, of course, the business case of which the budget will be part. And there can sometimes be a, a disconnect there when attention turns to converting the business case into a contract complete with the scope of requirements and a, and a timetable for delivery. So that, I think, neatly shifts our focus on to ensuring that you put an effective agreement in place in the first instance. Yeah, and look, it, it can be frustrating to be seen to hold back progress while all the relevant legal documentation is put in place. But a robust, comprehensive legal agreement could save significant time and cost once a project's up and running and provide significant assistance in the event that something goes wrong. Um, and this isn't necessarily a suggestion born out of pessimism. It reflects the fact that major transformation projects tend to be complex, they're business critical, and there are often lots of potential failure points. Yeah, and the, the agreements for such projects are often incredibly long and detailed, even for the well-initiated such as us. And there's a lot to think about when starting the process. And I think you can fully understand why somebody who's less experienced might wonder you know, where to begin in putting the contract together. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it can be quite overwhelming coming um, to it fresh. But taking things back to the basics, it's important to effectively communicate what it is the project's trying to achieve. Um, and, and that's important to both suppliers and, and customers. Um, and if suppliers are having to constantly try and hit a moving target, the potential for additional cost, delay and disputes is significant. Yeah, I'd agree. In other words, the scope of what is being delivered and how it's going to be delivered. And it's certainly something I've seen in practice. And, and that goes back to the point I was making earlier about the translation of the business case into a contract and all of its constituent parts. And an appreciation, I guess, that technology change usually will also involve a level of, of business change. And the need to bring all customer stakeholders along with the project or risk there being an irreconcilable gap between what the customer thinks it's bought and what the supplier thinks it's contracted to deliver. And I guess another thing we often see is each party blaming the other when things go wrong. That's perhaps only natural when, in reality, though, both parties will share at least some of the blame. Yeah, that's very true. And it's absolutely critical from the outset as well to ensure that everyone is clear about their respective roles and responsibilities. I mean, of course, the intention is that everyone will work together to provide the various deliverables, but things are rarely, as we know, that simple in a complex IT project. Um, there's very, often various different inputs, various different third parties, all of which need to be managed. And without a clear delineation of roles and responsibilities, that can be very tricky. It's also as well very important to have clear guidance as to how and by who the project will be managed and governed. It's important that that's not a tablet of stone and that you keep looking at this as the project develops many of these projects especially on an agile methodology are quite fluid so it's important not simply to put the contract in the drawer to gather dust and update um, and regularly review and perhaps have a racy matrix in place okay so technology contracts are well known for acronyms and you, you've just used one there dan you've referred to a, a racy matrix for for those who are not familiar with that perhaps do you just want to explain what racy stands for and clarify what a racy matrix does and, and helps with? 
Yeah, of, of course. Um, it's, it's in essence a responsibility assignment matrix and it stands for responsibilities, accountability and who needs to be consulted and informed, so RACI. It's an incredibly useful project management tool and it maps out every task, milestone or key decision against those who have responsibility, accountability or those who need to be consulted or informed. And certainly this is something which keeps the parties unfocused as to their roles and can be updated regularly as the project goes along. Yeah, I mean, they are very helpful. And we, we certainly see lots of examples of parties perhaps not fully understanding what their respective roles involve, even if there is a race matrix. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing which is quite common is customers sometimes being surprised about the level of input that's been required of them. Often they're spending a lot of money, they're bringing in highly technical specialists and they think, okay, job done, we can leave them to it. But that, that's very rarely the case and neglect the fact that even on seemingly straightforward implementations, there'll be significant amounts of data or inputs which customers have to provide. I mean, this is even the case for um, the so-called out-of-box solutions, which often require at least some degree of configuration to meet the customer's needs. Um, but equally, the suppliers need to be educating the customers at an early stage and be upfront about the level of input they require. It's not just a customer failing. And also, it's not all just a question of who has the responsibility. It's the extent of that responsibility which needs to be understood and clearly set out as well. This was quite vividly set out in the um, Siskel and IBM case in respect of IBM's due diligence obligations. Being explicit as possible as to what's required of the parties is really important. Yeah, okay, so that's the parties' roles and responsibilities, but it's also important to ensure the parties are fulfilling their roles, and that's really just one part of the bigger picture, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and and to, I think the, the key to that is having a robust governance structure in place. Um, I mean, that will assist for many reasons. It'll reinforce roles, it'll identify responsibilities as the project progresses, It'll help outline decision-making over the course of the project, sharing of information and best practice, ensuring alignment of all relevant stakeholders. And it goes back to what you said earlier, Simon, about the need for business change and involving people throughout the business and get really getting them on board with this. And also, it documents progress on the projects to ensure things are on track. And it's a really good early warning system and ensuring any issues are identified as soon as possible and steps can be taken to resolve them at an early stage. But again, the governance structure, a bit like the roles and responsibilities, should be reviewed on a regular basis to ensure it remains fit for purpose as the project continues. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach here that works. I think from my experience, too much governance can stall progress um, and too little, and the project can run off the rails. So, so structure is very, very important. And having the right governance structure in place can also help the parties, I guess, if they eventually end up in a dispute, can't it? Um, yeah, prov certainly provided it's followed, um, which isn't always the case. Um, but the minutes from governance meetings are um, a really useful contemporaneous bit of evidence in the event that a dispute does arise in terms of identifying what went wrong, when and how. So it's important that not only are the minutes as full as possible, but they're also stored somewhere where you can easily access them um, in the event of a dispute. Um, so ideally, you don't want it to be on a, a locked away hard drive that's in the possession of your um, <laughs> the, other, the, the other party. Yeah, and, and that certainly happens. So even with all those things in place, though, it doesn't, of course, necessarily prevent a dispute. And it's important, I guess, to consider the question, well, what if things go wrong at an early stage? 
Yeah, agree. Um, and effective dispute resolution provisions should be considered as a priority. In long-running IT digital transformation projects, on signature, the parties will likely committed to a very long-term relationship. It involves the parties both making a significant financial investment and a business investment. And it really is in both parties' interest to do everything they can to keep the lights on while any disagreements are explored and hopefully remedied. I mean, with these disputes, Simon, we've seen how costly and, and how time-consuming that they are when they get to the, the courtroom setting. And it is very clearly, very rarely, sorry, a clear winner or loser in these situations. Yeah, that's a, that's a really fair point, Dan. And, and we're going to discuss dispute resolution clauses in more detail in a later episode, or at least I am. But they are certainly worth uh, focusing on very carefully. And they're often called, I think, midnight clauses, as they're some of the last things which are negotiated if they're negotiated at all. So ignoring them or just simply paying lip service to them when negotiating the contract is, I'd say, a, a dangerous a dangerous game. So what should the parties be thinking about in terms of a dispute resolution clause? Well, they need to consider the particular circumstance of their relationship and what potential disputes could arise. So, for instance, it's worth bearing in mind where the parties are located, you know, how easy is it to enforce any judgment. Um, the strength of the ongoing relationship between the parties and whether they're likely to need external interventions to help resolve issues should also be borne in mind. The length of the contract is important and also whether disputes may need to be resolved very quickly in order to allow continued smooth running of an ongoing project. And finally, um, it's worth giving some consideration to the likely level of technical expertise which might be necessary to determine the dispute and even have some potential um, individuals who may have that relevant expertise to assist um, in mind. This can, if, you, if it's too much overthought and perhaps too much manufactured, can result in hybrid clauses which deal with different types of disputes in different ways, but care should be taken to avoid clauses which are too complex or novel, because you might end up in satellite disputes as to which mechanism should be deployed in any specific circumstance, which in itself isn't going to be particularly helpful. Yeah, like, like with most things in life, there's a, there's a balance there, isn't there, again? And I think there's also a similar point about one size not fitting all and also about actually using what's in the contract. But again, that's probably for another day. So so moving away from the wording of the contract, you mentioned something as well at the start, which is perhaps a little more of an intangible, the importance of teamwork. So can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, there's very much an important people aspect to successful large IT projects. So the right people need to be allocated to the right roles, as we discussed earlier, and they need to know exactly what it is that's expected of them and the, the, the scope and breadth of their obligations. Um, but not just that, a great deal of collaboration and trust is needed to successfully navigate the probably often turbulent waters of a large tech project. And the importance of a strong team can't be underestimated. And, you know, it, it may seem extreme that we're saying this, but, the, you know, these are real world problems. And I've certainly seen examples where personality differences even between key members of the respective parties can have a catastrophic impact on a project. So people issues, and perhaps this is something that can be raised in governance meetings, need to be identified and ironed out very quickly. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there is a you know, a real need for collaboration and trust if the project's going to be successful. But what other people-related aspects do you think also might need to be considered? Well, we discussed that these projects and these contracts are often very long-running. Um, and one 
consequence of that is that people will come and go from the project and, and, and if possible and, and it you know it's, it's difficult it, it can't always be done trying to avoid a high turnover of staff is important because there is an inevitable knowledge drain if that happens and you know it, because it's so long running it's inevitable that there will be a degree of churn but still if people do leave it's absolutely vital to ensure that the detailed handovers and that any information which is key to the project is retained in an easily accessible shared location. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true. Thanks for that, Dan. So if despite taking the steps we've already discussed today, a dispute does still arise, what would your headline advice be to the listeners? So if the project does look like it's in serious distress, it's important to take legal advice at an early stage in order to position yourself as best as possible for any subsequent dispute, whilst at the same time, one, trying to maintain privilege and perhaps most importantly, undertaking efforts from a commercial and technological perspective to mitigate the impact of the issues which are faced. I think we're going to focus on, well, certainly the team are going to focus on some of the legal mechanisms which may assist projects in distress in the next episode. But from a more practical perspective, while it might be quite frustrating to effectively add to your workload when a dispute emerges, thought does need to be given as to who the potential witnesses may be, potentially instructing an expert at an early stage to give a preliminary view as to the cause of the issues. And ultimately, that can guide your litigation strategy and, and getting your case and your position together as quickly and, and robustly as possible can actually short-circuit the dispute and, and avoid proceedings, strangely. So, again, I, I, I'm going to use the phrase spending a penny at an early stage to potentially save a pound later on. Yeah, OK. Well, thanks for that, Dan. That's a really helpful introduction to a few key themes which I'll be picking up with others in later episodes. I think that about wraps it up for the first episode of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. Please look out for the article which accompanies this episode, which will shortly be available on the DLAPiper.com website. Also, look out for episode two, which will be available in a few weeks' time, when I'll be joined by my colleague Joanna Hay to provide some advice in regards to operating a technology contract to your advantage, including how to deal with a number of contract management issues which may arise. Thank you for listening. Thank you.